Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started today, I'd love you to go to lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. That's lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. Join the army that's going to help at the grassroots level make sure that pro-democracy candidates are victorious this November and get us into 2023 with a safe and healthy democracy. Only you can do it. Again, lincolnproject.us slash action dash center. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Tom Nichols, a specialist on international security affairs, including Russia, nuclear strategy, and NATO. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, proprietor of the Peace Field newsletter, five-time Jeopardy! champion, and has authored a multitude of books, including his latest, Our Own Worst Enemy, and his previous, The Death of Expertise. Tom, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Reed. Good to be with you. So, Tom, today I want to talk about last week's leak from the Supreme Court regarding the Roe v. Wade decision, as well as this idea that America has short-term memory syndrome. But first, Tom, you are sort of an expert on all things, but especially in Russia and NATO and potential nuclear war. So let's hope we can avoid that. But here we are now more than two months after the Russian invasion. The Ukrainians have more than held their own. The United States is sending weapons. Russia is decimating Ukrainian cities. You know, there's rumors that Putin is sick or that some people around him are ready to take him out. You know, this far in, how do you see it? Well, first things first, let's leave the rumors aside, because until they're substantiated somewhere, remember, there's a huge information war going on here. There's multiple participants in this information war. So my caution to everybody is, oh, you know, Putin's about to die. Putin's about to be deposed. Putin has hemorrhoids. Putin has <laughs> whooping cough, you know, whatever it is. Right. Don't get sucked too far down that rabbit hole. The other thing I think is really important to understand two months into this war is that we're still seeing the effect of a war that the Russians didn't plan on because they thought this whole thing was just going to be over in four days. So all the danger that the world is in right now and the world, I mean, we're not at Cuba 62, but we're a couple of steps away from it because there's a gigantic war raging in the middle of Europe and the Russians are involved and things are going badly for them. and. That's bad. All of this from a point of view of international stability and nuclear deterrence is all a bad destabilizing thing. But the thing to remember is they just didn't count on this. They really thought they were going to get away with this in a week. And so everything now is improvisation. Everything is just tap dancing and trying to deal with a loss that they didn't expect. And I think the thing that's really striking to me in the past week or so is that they've clearly made a decision, at least as a domestic narrative, that they want to make this seem like they're losing to NATO, because that's less humiliating than losing to Ukraine. And I understand why they're choosing that narrative. 
but it's also dangerous because they're getting the Russian people acclimated to the idea that the people they're really fighting are NATO. Let me ask you this about the domestic communications. And obviously, the West picks up all this stuff. We're watching it. You talk about, you know, we're not at the Cuban Missile Crisis step, but does it surprise you how sort of lighthearted these Russian propagandists are about nuking London, nuking Europe? Oh, you know, if we have to go up, you know, we'll all go to heaven anyway. I mean, there's propaganda and then there's sort of this weird, almost apocalyptic cult-like nature to the media there right now. You know, some of this is just the usual hysterical nature of the Russian media. They've kind of always been this way. You know, they want eyeballs on television sets and they want people backing Putin. And there may be some feedback. I mean, one of the more worrisome things is to think about is this may well be the Russian government and the Russian media preparing the Russian people for all out war. But it's also just possible that this is the foxification of all media in the world. So in that sense, I mean, what I'm seeing on Russian television looks like what I used to see in the Russian tabloids of the 1990s and the early 2000s, you know, about a lot of loose talk about nuclear war and Armageddon and all that stuff. But, you know, again, what worries me is that the psychological approach here is to say this is a war for the survival of Russia against the West. What started off as a special military operation to denazify, snort, to denazify and disarm bad guys in Ukraine, as any historian of the history of war will tell you, the more casualties you take, the more effort you put into it, your war aims start to rise to meet the price you're paying. And I think that's what's happening here with the Russians and on Russian media. So this is the second great patriotic war then? Not yet, but they're getting there. It's interesting, Reed. There's a dilemma for the Russians. If they say this is the second great patriotic war, they have to admit a couple of things. First, that the Ukrainians have kicked their ass. And second, that Russian military reform was a joke and that ever, all the money and effort they've been pouring into this for the past 10, 12 years didn't mean squat. So the Russians are trying to thread this line, and that's why they keep invoking NATO, because if they're losing to the Ukrainians, then they have to admit that all of their efforts at improving their military were for nothing. If they're losing to NATO, they can say, well, what do you expect? I mean, we did everything we could, but, you know, NATO is 30 countries, it's high tech, it's billions of people, dollars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that, at least as a public narrative, they've settled on that. But one of the things I find striking about this war, it is remarkable to me that Putin is so willing to dishonor the territory that was liberated by Soviet soldiers by killing former Soviet citizens with such abandon. I mean, we talk about the brutality of the Russians against the Chechens, which is an old blood feud. You say, yeah, they're Russian citizens too, but Stalin deported them all during the Second World War. You look at Russia and Syria, but these are the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the men who liberated all these areas from the Nazis, and Putin is soaking it in blood. And I never thought that I would be sitting here saying, you know, we should pay at least a modicum of respect to the sacrifice of the Soviet soldier and that I would be more concerned about that than the Russian president. But here we are. But I mean, don't you think, though, that there's also there's a viciousness that comes along with the punishment of the apostate, which is the Ukrainians forgot that they are actually, you know, a Russian substate, that they're the junior partner in this whole thing, that they're the younger cousins and they're not showing appropriate respect? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've been hammering on that I think took a while for Western media to get a handle on this is the degree to which this is a religious war. 
blessed by the patriarch in Russia to his eternal shame. I was going to use a stronger word, but it's not for me to decide the judgment of the Almighty. But I am an Orthodox Christian, and I find this a grievous, sinful abomination beyond what war normally is. And so, yeah, people have to understand that, you know, he thinks he's doing God's work. He thinks he's recreating some kind of Slavic Christian core that was lost with the collapse of the Soviet Union. There has never been in modern history, if you're going back to the beginning of the 20th century, you know, Ukraine is part of the Russian Empire and then it was part of the Soviet Empire. And for Putin to think of Ukraine as some independent place that exists, it's almost impossible for him. And, you know, this is partly why people like Obama and others would say he's a 19th century guy. He's not a 21st century person. All of that's true. He is not capable of thinking in these terms of, you know, that there are countries that I suppose we're all sensitive to this because, you know, you look at North America and say, you know, after 1776 and say, well, I'm sorry, that's a country now. But Putin just can't think in those categories. And I think what you're seeing now, you asked at the beginning of this, you know, what are we seeing two months into the war? I think what we're seeing is he's just murdering Ukrainians for being defiant. There's almost no strategic, I mean, he has a strategic goal of flattening Mariupol and trying to create this land bridge to Crimea and control of southern Ukraine. But I think a lot of what you're seeing is just the Russian military with Putin's blessing and the patriarch's blessing, the Russian patriarch's blessing, saying, as you said, these insolent people need to be ground into dust and their blood needs to soak into the ground for their defiance. And last question on this, because, you know, as we started this part of the conversation, he believed it would be four days. They'd roll in. They'd be hailed as the liberators of, you know, their Western kleptocracy. And now it's if I can't have it, nobody can have it. There's the human toll. There's the military toll. And now there's an economic toll, which I saw that the head of the European Union came out last week and said, you know, we got to start planning for how we're going to rebuild this place because it's Berlin or Stalingrad, 1945. In a lot of these places, there's nothing left. Right. There's nothing left. I mean, places like Mariupol, they're just going to have to rebuild it from the ground up. But I think this is the lashing out of this deluded egomaniac and his high command. I think the Russian military has been humiliated here. They want payback. I mean, I think going back to the nuclear question, there may be people in the Russian military who are hotter to use nuclear weapons at this point than Putin may be, because this has been the greatest humiliation of Russian military forces probably since, you know, 1905. And while Putin has pointed the finger at the Russian intelligence services, you know, there's plenty of blame to go around that. I mean, I think the spooks all said he thinks he's the top spook and he knows more about Ukraine than anybody else. And we can't argue with him. And the military nodded. Oh, sure, boss, you know, we can do this. I think a lot of people around him said, I don't think he's really going to do this. But if you're asked, you have to say, sure, we could do that. That's a pretty common reaction. So going back to your question, I don't think we're at Great Patriotic War 2.0, but we're certainly not at the end of this thing. So let's shift significant gears. Let's zoom out of Ukraine, come back to the United States and stay with the concept of things you could do. But the question is, should you do them? Last week, there was an unprecedented leak of a draft Supreme Court decision in which it appears that five conservative justices are going to overturn Roe v. Wade, 50 plus years of, I will call it legal precedent because I'm not sure what else to call it. There has been a corresponding reaction from Democrats and progressives, pro-choice supporters, not surprising about the decision itself. But Tom, what I have found, and I think what we have found so striking is that on the right, 
whether or not that's the right wing media or Republican politicians, it has been that the leak in and of itself was an insurrection, that these people should be hunted down like dogs and brought to justice. And so it's like every other fight that the left and the right have in this country. They're talking past each other. What's your sense of it? And from your perch in beautiful Rhode Island, how do you see it? Well, first, when it comes to who leaked what, you could make the argument that right wingers leaked it to get everybody used to what's coming, to kind of let the shock wear off so that when the actual decision comes down, everybody says, well, we knew this was going to happen. The right wingers argue that some lefties have done it to gin up opposition. And at this point, I kind of don't care who leaked it because I think that once this Supreme Court took the form it did, overturning Roe was a matter of time. I am deeply conflicted about this because I've only mentioned this a few times and I've said it in a few other venues. I haven't really written about it very much. My mother almost died from an illegal abortion. I think that I'm where most of the country is, which is that some kind of abortion, first of all, you're not going to disinvent it. You're not going to uninvent something that's been around for a couple thousand years. And that's that it has to stay legal. The notion that you're just going to outlaw this and turn America into this abortion-free zone, I don't think is realistic. And I also think, and you know, you may have some thoughts on this as, you know, former conservative warriors. I am deeply suspicious of the motives of a lot of the pro-lifers. Abortion is the issue that mobilizes voters for a lot of issues, and it's a resource for power. I wonder, and this is purely me as a non-expert, non-constitutional lawyer, not a guy who does domestic politics a lot, I wonder if this is going to be like prohibition, where people are pushing for it, then they kind of get it in some states. The dog they, catches the, the car. The dog catches the car, and suddenly they realize that, like, wow, this was really a great political issue, and it got people all fired up into the polls, and now we're stuck with this disaster, and it's killing women, and it's causing all this human misery. And like I said about the Ukraine war, we're not nearly at the end of this thing, but I will say one thing to Democrats who are listening. This is why I was pounding the table for years about Democrats paying attention to state-level elections, because this will now be fought out in state legislatures. And I think for too long, Democrats, and I'm not the only one to say this, Mark Lilla, a bona fide you know, liberal, he calls it the liberal daddy problem, that liberals think that if they elect the president, daddy fixes everything, that if as long as you have a president that you like in the White House, he fixes everything. And of the three or four or five years that I spent actually working in politics, Almost three of those were in state politics in Massachusetts. And I know that in state houses, that's where the action happens. And I kept telling people, you know, I get it. You know, Supreme Court appointments are important, but this is going to go to the state houses and you guys need to vote in state elections. And they just don't. There's a parallel to that, too, which is Republicans and groups like Alec and those understood the power to your point of the state house, but also and you look back at Scalia and the Second Amendment, that the conservatives have always done a good job of creating, funding, and keeping up legal institutes and law journals, the Federalist Society, you know, all of these things that speak to a conservative judicial viewpoint. And then they can go back and, you know, Scalia, I think, used something, some law paper that had been created in the 80s to make a decision about the Second Amendment. But it was all circular. Now, they had to wait 20 years to get it. But I think it also, to your point, though, it's always seemed to me that 
the Republicans always say we don't like legislating from the bench, but what they're doing is creating. They a, love. Le- they're right. Kidding? It's a supranational legislature in which the people are unelectable and unaccountable and are able to create among society things that are broadly unpopular to the culture on behalf of a very small set of people. I still think of myself temperamentally and philosophically as a conservative, certainly not as a Republican, certainly not as an American movement conservative, because they have become everything they fought against. You know, we need to get judges who will see it our way. And I, long before Trump, I remember talking with some of our fellow brothers and sisters and, you know, on the right and saying, I'm sorry, aren't we the people that don't want judges legislating from the bench? And the answer was, well, the liberals did it. And so now we're going to do it. And I'm like, okay, but if the conservative principle here is that the judiciary is not an activist branch of government, how are you solving this by making the judiciary into an activist branch of government that you happen to like? And I think that the American right or the American, I don't even want to call them the right or conservatives, the American authoritarian movement that is now out there has decided exactly as you said, that what we cannot get at the ballot box we will simply legislate through the courts. And for a guy who joined the Republican Party in Massachusetts in 1979, I'm looking back and saying, wow, that's exactly what Republicans in the 70s were saying about liberals, that you can't get what you want at the ballot box. You're going to try and ram it through the courts. Structurally, there is no difference between what the now this group that calls themselves Republicans are doing from what they accused liberal Democrats of doing in the 1970s and 80s. But I think it's also another reminder that the Republican Party used to be that of individual liberty, right? Keep government out of my house. Keep government out of my bedroom. Now they're going to be in your hospital, in your clinic. And a couple of people have noticed this, and I noticed it when it happened several months ago, was that down in Texas, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who should be a federal inmate by now, you know, created this legal memo saying that because gay marriage was not enshrined in the state constitution in Texas, therefore it cannot be enforceable in Texas, which, you know, they'll try and put something into place. A federal judge will block it. It will go to the Fifth Circuit, which is as nutty a circuit as there is down in New Orleans, and then it will go to the Supreme Court and Alito will say gay marriage has got no history in America either. Boom. Or it'll be contraception. Interracial marriage or whatever Interracial, right, loving. Revisit all that because, again, not a constitutional lawyer, but once you open that door and say, well, it wasn't in the, well, there's a lot of things that weren't in the Constitution. Yeah, they wrote it in 1787. Yeah. (laughs) But again, this is what I mean about being suspicious of the motives. Of course, there are people who care deeply about this issue, but the people who professionally mobilize it and weaponize it, this tragic and painful issue for millions of Americans that gets turned into this political howitzer that's brought into the public square, you have to ask yourself, what is the point here? Because this is certainly not a group of people trying to reestablish a more moral America. I don't think the party of, you know, Matt Gates and Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Kevin McCarthy and J.D. Vance and Mitch McConnell, for that matter, give a rat's ass about a more moral America. There is this sense that I think these are all issues that activate resentful and angry Republicans. Uh, You know, look, there are a lot of things that conservatives 
would disapprove of coming from a very traditionalist, you know, theist approach of respect for religious tradition and so on. But what was the underlying thing? You didn't use the power of government. You didn't use the heavy hand, especially of executive authority to enforce that. And Republicans now have gone to, yeah, sure. Let's do everything we accused liberals of doing in the 1960s. Let us re-engineer society using the heavy hand of government to do things that we know a majority of the American people would never accept. That is not a conservative principle in any way. Right. And, and let me ask you this, because I was not around in the 1960s. Does it seem like whether or not it's Brown versus Board of Education, the New Deal, the Great Society stuff of the 60s, Voting Rights Act, the Equal Rights Act, that it appeared that those were supposed to be for the betterment of parts of society, going back to the 14th Amendment, you know, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, of folks who had been intentionally marginalized by society. They were supposed to be for the greater good, even if, you know, in the best of intentions, things don't work out. That's not unusual. This seems to be for the benefit of a small very angry, very ugly part of society. And I even apply it to voting rights where it's like the courts will do it, you know, to make these people happy. And in the state legislatures, to your point, will create the electorate we want because we know the electorate that exists also doesn't agree with a lot of this. Yeah, it's lib owning as the only plank of a national political party and libs being defined as everyone who's not us. Right. But let me ask you this. Let me lean back on your experience with the Kremlin, which is at what point does something like this start to eat itself? Because I assume that in these sorts of structures, whether or not it was in the Soviet system, whether or not it was in the national socialist system, that the internal fighting, the purity test and all these other stuff start to chew itself up. Now, it took 12 years for Germany. It took 70 years for the communists. But it's a very unhealthy system. And the, the average citizen in those systems does not prosper. There's two things to think about here. One is when you were talking about those government programs helping marginalized populations, the real irony to me in the 60s and 70s is that the main beneficiary of a lot of those programs were the white working class, which is where I'm from. You know, it always amazed me that people who had, I mean, people in my family, you know, people had city pensions, Social Security disability, Medicare, talking about, you know, all those freeloading minorities. Interestingly enough, my mom worked in a great society program, and this is one place where I have to throw this back again to our friends on the left, which is a lot of those things backfired. And rather than admit it, they doubled down and said, well, then you're just a bunch of racists. Instead of saying, look, these programs benefit a lot of people, including the white working class. My mom worked in this anti-poverty program in the late 60s, early 70s, and by 1980, she was a Reagan Republican. Well, it goes back to what you said about people in war doubling down. The bigger the stakes get, the worse it's going. You just double, 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 double. Yeah. You know, and in Massachusetts, it was like, oh, you think these programs aren't working, so you hate minorities. And, you know, this was just crazy. But I think that the Democrats not only failed to make this case about who really benefits from them, but also they became so woven into American society that people just didn't see it that way. I mean, we are a society, to use an old saw, that literally does not understand how stupid it is to say, keep the government's hands off my Medicare. The second part of that, though, is your question about when does this all eat itself? You know, I wondered this in 2017 where Trump and the Republicans sweep, right? And I said to a lot of the Trumpers, you win. What do you want? You've got it. You've done it. You've captured the government. You won. What do you want? And you could tell that the answer was, I just want you to be pissed off. 
Well, okay, but five years later, this is kind of a what's the matter with Kansas question. I mean, Thomas Frank wrote that book 25 years ago, and the question still hangs out there. Why is it that you are so resentful and so pissed off and actually not that bad off that you will just hurt yourself for the momentary pleasure? I'm going to just do a cheap self-promotion moment here, Reed. This is why I wrote a whole book about it. And this is why I found it hard to write a book about it. And I think it has a lot to do with just resentment and high living standards and people focusing on their differences rather than their commonalities. And a bunch of political entrepreneurs, including Fox News and the usual suspects, who figured out how to make money out of this. But when does it eat itself? I think that process has already begun. Now, the question is how much damage will be done to the country before this is all over? Because the other thing that's going to end this as I'm a little older than you, but as men of a certain age, is when older white people just exit the voting population. Demographics are eventually going to change all of this, but there's a huge amount of damage that can be done in the 10 or 15 years before that happens. Let me ask you this because, you know, there's that whole idea, right? Demographics is destiny. But let me ask you this. Do demographics get here in time? I'm 61. And a guy that I went to high school with who has since passed away good friend of mine, known him from second grade, God rest his soul. But you know what he really wanted was for our neighborhood to look the way it did in 1966. And I think that that is where demography becomes important because you are going to lose the people who remember what that was like. I remember saying to him, this was a working class guy with a high school diploma. And I've, I always pointed this out and he had a boat. I live in Newport. And I don't have a boat. You know, and I say to him, dude, you're railing about how unfair America is. I said, you have a boat. And he would shake his hand. He'd say, you don't understand. I said, no, I understand. I said, the corner barbershop where we grew up is a Spanish church and you hate that. And he said, yeah, I do. There will come a time when no one will remember when it was a corner barbershop. The days of remembering when it was this kind of fake Norman Rockwell thing are going to pass. So Tom, let me ask you this. America's short-term amnesia or maybe long-term amnesia, which is we don't remember anything very long. We're now two plus years into a pandemic. Approximately a million Americans are dead. A lot of us act like nothing has changed. I know you travel a fair bit and you talk about how people act on airplanes, not just their, their shoes off, but now people <laughs> are just insane on airplanes. There doesn't seem to be any appreciation of history how did that happen? How did this amnesia take over so fast? High living standards and a rapid information environment. Things that would have been a story for weeks are over in a day because there's 900 other things, not just intentionally flooding the zone, just it's the nature of being plugged in. I've tried to explain to American citizens, you know, like they say, well, but how do I keep up? I said, look, I'm paid to have opinions and I don't follow as much news as you do. I disconnect now and then. You should too. And so it's that, but also I think it is really high living standards and this sense that the way things are, the way things have always been and the way things they always should have been. I mean, I love being my age. I still teach undergrad. I've retired from my government job, but I still teach undergrads at night. You know, and I say things like, you know, I hitch my pants up and I'm like, you know, in my day we had three TV channels and they went off at one o'clock in the morning and they all look at me like I'm lying. And it signed off with the national anthem. And military patriotics, the high flight flags and eagles flags. And exactly. And I think there's no more poisonous influence that comes out of that than false nostalgia, because a lot of what's driving Trumpism and the American authoritarian movement is this 
pining away for an America that didn't exist. You know, when my friend says 1965, that was, you know, when we were kids, that was great. I'm like, not if you were black and not if you were our dads going to work in dangerous factories before there was OSHA and coming in with their fingers crushed, you know, and he's like, well, and I was like, of course you thought it was great. You were five. There was a candy store. But I think we have re-engineered this nostalgia to make ourselves feel better. And I think it's just poisonous. And people like Trump, they prey on that. No, it's that sort of gauzy rearview mirror of history. Absolutely. And we've also forgotten that we once lived under the threat of nuclear annihilation, and that's coming back. So I think a lot of people are going to be shocked to find out how scary that was. So, Tom, let me ask you this. So just to go back to the COVID thing for a second, I was just listening to this book, April 1845. And, you know, they talked about, I think it was either Okinawa or Iwo Jima. And the Marines in the Army there suffered 20,000 casualties killed, wounded, and injured. And it was considered a bloodbath. We lost tens of thousands of wounded, maybe seven, 8,000 killed in Iraq and Afghanistan over 20 years. And it was a national shock to the system. We, at its height of COVID, were losing 1,000, 2,000 people a day. And now it's just like, eh, yeah. Does that have an effect on our national psyche? But give me a sense of that, because I'm just, I can't get over it. There's two ways to look at it. One is that because the pandemic was so concentrated after the initial shock, right? I mean, I believe, and I will never know, that my brother died of COVID because he was in a soldier's home in Massachusetts where it ripped through and a bunch of guys died and they didn't do autopsies. And they just said, well, they were old and they died of, you know, Parkinson's and dementia and whatever. Pretty sure that my brother probably died of it, along with some other close friends. But that first six months, I think what happened after that first year was that the politicization of the pandemic meant that, and I, I admit it, Reed, and I feel, you know, again, as a Christian, I feel like this is not spiritually appropriate. But, you know, I, I was one of the people who said, well, people got vaccinated. And if you didn't want to get vaccinated and you wanted to throw the dice, I just kind of started to tune it out. Like I would have arguments with people about government mandates, which I supported for a year. And which I don't support now. And people say, well, there's 500 people day, a day dying. And I'm like, well, a lot of people die from drunk driving, too. That's a risk they're taking. I was smiling. You know, people can't see us, but I was laughing when you brought this up. It's not because it was an unserious subject, but remember the movie Goldfinger, where Sean Connery says something like, uh, you know, Goldfinger, you, to get this out, you're gonna, you'll kill thousands of people, you know, and 50,000. And Goldfinger says, twice that many American motorists die on the roads every day, Mr. Bond. And it's the same thing. For a long time, until we had a reaction to drunk driving, we just accepted a certain amount of carnage on the roads as like the price of doing business, the price of having open bars and liquor stores. But I thought we would start to pull together when we were getting up around 10,000 dead. In fact, when I wrote The Death of Expertise, and I'll, I'll let everybody in on a peek behind the curtain secret about something I was writing, you know, because the death of expertise came out and then I was writing an article for a major journal that I will not name because it's a great journal and this was not their fault. And they said, hey, do you want to write a follow up now that this pandemic's gone? So I started to do this draft saying, hey, I think now that there's X number of deaths, people are going to gravitate back toward expert opinion and all that stuff. And a couple of months went by and the editor kind of reached out to me and he said, you know, and I said, no, no, just squash it. You know, and they said, well, well, we'll give you a kill. I said, no, no, no kill. Just, I was wrong. We shouldn't even think about going forward with this. But it tells you something that I started to draft out this piece saying, 
hey, people are going to pull together. People are going to get it. You know, they're going to they're going to make sacrifices. We're going to develop a vaccine. We're going to, you know, find different ways to educate our kids for a few months. And within a year, it was like, no, we're just in open social warfare. So I think going back to your original question, I think part of the reason that the giant death toll has just kind of bounced off of a lot of folks, and to my shame, I am one of them now, is because it was concentrated in people who said, screw you, I'd rather die. Now, the problem is that they're taking a certain number of people with them by taking that position. But when you're seeing the figures that I can't remember the last number I saw, something like 98% of people now dying from COVID are unvaccinated. You know, I have friends, I had to reschedule something this week. Friend of mine said, hey, can't get together with you next week. Tested positive. He's 71 years old. I said, how you feeling? He said, yeah, I got the sniffles. It's like, I'm okay. I'll see you next week. We'll do lunch next week. And I was like, okay. You know, what would have been this like shocking, holy crap, all hands on deck, you know, bring soup, masks, you know. I think a lot of folks have just gotten to the point of saying, you know, this is one of many things you can die of but that the people who are dying of it have made this conscious choice to kind of be part of this suicide cult. Are you afraid or do you believe that this could be a precursor to just Americans seeing life as cheap or cheaper than we have previously? I don't. You know, it's funny you, you said it that way, Reed, because I thought you were going to go somewhere else. I thought you were going to say to Americans, you know, breaking apart and the collapse of the country. That actually worries me more in the sense of not of a unwinding of that tomorrow we'll have four Americas and will not be the United States, but that it continues this deepening process of living separately from each other. I mean, you heard me do it again. I'm going to flag myself as, you know, one of the guilty parties. When you asked about this, I said, well, you know, I live in new England where schools are good abortion rights. You know, women are, you know, what happens with Roe is not really going to affect what's happening here. We're talking about states that have these, you know, 80, 90% vaccination rates. I don't want us to live in a country where the answer is, well, okay, the answer to what happened in the Ohio elections or the Alabama vaccine rates is that I'm just not going to go to Ohio or, or Alabama. And this goes back to my Kremlin thing, which is that I always felt comfortable in my own country. Coming back from Russia, I always felt safe and at home coming anywhere in the United States. And a friend of mine who's a retired ambassador a couple of years back, he said, for the first time in my life, this was before the pandemic, he said, for the first time in my life, I don't have that feeling of coming back to a country that is stable and secure and my home because of this kind of social division. And the pandemic just made it worse. Well, and I think to your point about the different regions and you know who knows if anything breaks up, but I think something like a potential road decision could have a situation where you take a state like California who said there's no business travel to Texas anymore. There's no state business travel to Florida anymore. If you are a California-based company with 10,000 plus employees in a state like Texas, you're now going to pay a 7% surcharge on something. And then Texas retaliates with, okay, well, we're not going to refine your oil, right? Or Utah says you can't have our water anymore. And those things take what is a social problem, turn it into a political problem, and then a true tangible problem. You know, I went to school in Austin, Texas. It's a pretty progressive town. I don't see a lot of people wanting to leave Austin, Texas anytime soon. But you could see folks are like, you know, it's been a good run three, four years here, but, you know, I can work from anywhere. So I'll go to I'll go to Rhode Island. Funny you mentioned that, I mean, because, again, I, I mentioned I saw an old friend earlier who's about to retire and he has a second home in Florida. And he said, 
you know, it was a good run in Florida and we're there because we have friends, but you know, I can have second homes, a lot of places that are nice. And I think what that leads to is not like a war between the states, but like Austin, where you have these blue enclaves and it just makes the problem of the abandoned rural and small towns even worse. And that's the thing I really worry about. I mean, one of the things that I talked about in my last book, I talked about my hometown, which was flat on its ass by the late 70s. You know, their biggest employer was a tire company. So that should tell you something. One of the things I'm really happy to see is that my hometown, it took 30 years. The last time I was there, I thought, you know, they're doing okay. There are a lot of these places that can come back. But if in places like Ohio, the Rust Belt, Appalachia, you know, if people just say, you know what? They've made their decision. We've made ours. Then what you get is not Civil War 2.0, but you just get this kind of slow death because it does require an entire country to keep infrastructure and interstate trade and, you know, movement and replenishing of populations. You can't do this by creating these kind of stupid Florida moves of, well, we're going to punish Disney. That's already in trouble, right? That the Florida legislature did this and now Floridians are saying, wow, this was really stupid. You know, we've just shot ourselves in the foot um, and maybe we shouldn't keep doing that. I mean, I don't know how that ends. But here's the other part, too, though, you know, to skip to Disney and, you know, back to what we call now Republicans, which is you have a Ron DeSantis who was pissed off, decided to pick a fight with the biggest corporate interest in Florida. I don't think he's pissed off. I think he said, I want to be president. Fair enough. Um, I want some hot button issue that I don't really give a shit about, but it, it'll rile up the rubes and it'll get me a lot of national press and nobody will look really closely at it. And then I can run on a national issue. I don't think Ron DeSantis gives a rat's ass about any of this. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and here's, I think, something that even backs that up, which is all these people are saying, you know, you do this, it's going to cost all these Floridians more money in taxes. And Disney's saying, you know, this is going to fall to the state. Ron DeSantis goes to Las Vegas and goes, Disney's going to pay its taxes. Disney's going to pay the bill. He knows he's lying. It's the Mexico will build the wall of 2022. But here's the thing is that, Tom, as you know, in that media ecosystem, there are probably if you surveyed Republicans in Florida right now, probably 75 percent of them would say, yes, I believe Ron DeSantis. Disney will pay the bill. I've been saying this for the past five years, ever since Trump became a genuine threat on the radar. I actually wrote a piece years ago in the in USA Today. I said, Trump wants a trade war. Give him one. Let him have it. And of course, how are we unspooling that trade war? Who are the people that really hurt? Trump voters. You know, suddenly they're going, oh, wait a minute. I'm a small manufacturer. I get stuff from China. You know, he wasn't supposed to be hurting me. You know what? Ron DeSantis can say whatever he wants. I hope they ram it through. And suddenly that tax bill arrives in all these Florida counties. You know, maybe H.L. Mencken was right. Maybe democracy is that the common man knows what he wants and deserves to get it good and hard. <laughs> maybe that is the only way we learn. I made this argument when Trump was first elected. And, you know, the Never Trump Society of Handringers, of which I was a founding member, as you know. I darn near wrung my hands off once he won. But I did make the argument at the time, don't idiot-proof the government. If Trump is going to ram the government into a ditch, let him do it. And let him do it in real time. And I think one of the things that's really distressing about the revelations that we're now seeing from the January 6th committee and from memoirs and other things is that there were too many safety bumpers that let people think that Trump was going to be okay, right? That he couldn't do that much damage. 
And I think only now we're realizing how many of those circuit breakers were tripped while Trump was in office. I think at some point people should have to live with the consequences of their actions. Now, with something like Roe, to go back to what we were talking about a minute ago, unfortunately, that means a lot of people are going to get hurt before somebody says, wow, this was a really bad idea and we're going to have to back up. Well, listen, Tom, as always, I could talk to you for another two hours. Before I let you go, where can our folks find you on social media if you dare to go there anymore? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, as I always tell people who follow me on social media, I'm sorry. You know, I preemptively apologize. Um, you can follow me at Radio Free Tom and you can subscribe to my newsletter at The Atlantic. It's called Peacefield, which is named after John Adams's retirement home as a Massachusetts guy. And that's where I hang out these days at The Atlantic. And you can find me on um, Twitter. As a loyal reader and follower, I can only recommend highly not only Tom's weekly writing, but also his two books are absolutely worth the read. You may not agree with everything he says, but you will certainly be both enlightened and give you something to think about. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Tom, thanks again for joining me and everybody will see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.